Good morning, ladies, and welcome to Torah with the Takeaway. This Parsha is Parsha's bow, and we're calling the title of this week's class Plagues with a Purpose. We're going to explore the themes, some of the themes given about the 10 plagues in this week's Parsha. And we are also going to uh, get up, come up with some amazing thoughts, ideas, and conclusions that will hopefully be life-changing. Now, in this week's Parsha, we see the last three of the plagues. We also are told about the Corban Pesach, the past fast lamb, if you want to call it, the Passover sacrifice, and also Rosh Chodesh. I think last year we talked about Rosh Chodesh in length, so today I'm doing something different. Before we get into this, however, there was a question posed about last week's class that was not answered on the Tuesday class, and I wanted to answer right here, and it ties in with everything. Last week, we talked about faith and mission, and someone asked me the brilliant question of what is, how do we know what our mission is? So I just want to briefly say that, you know, especially as adults, Hashem kind of limits the playing field. So we definitely know what our mission is not, or we did not necessarily that either. Our mission is to try our best. There are many sfarim, let's say, such as the Chobos HaLavavos. I'll tell you a personal thing that happened to me years ago. I, I had years where I was really struggling with Parnassa, and I went into Rav Scheinberg's, that's all, and I asked him, what should I do, you know, as far as Parnassa? And I had this option, that option, and then I was telling them, I was talking to him about, um, he said, what, in, what does your heart tell you that you feel you're cut out for? What do you want to do with such a passion? I said, I want to be a teacher. So he said, then you're a teacher. He said, then you're a teacher. He said, but you know, if you have to do something in the meantime, you do it, but you're a teacher. In other words, if a person senses they have certain strengths and everyone has certain strengths, they should do it. Now, sometimes the shame gives us surprises and gives us something we never even asked for, you know, or, you know, he takes away whatever we think we're going to do. But in any case, that's just as far as, uh, you know, what, what our, you know, personal mission is. But everyone, the main mission is that whatever we go through, the, the vicissitudes of life, we are supposed to endure them. We are supposed to survive them. We are supposed to be happy about them. We have to come out with a moon and bitachan. We have to try to do as many mitzvahs as we can. That's a general thing for anybody. Some people will find themselves gravitating to certain mitzvahs. If some people, let's say, can't serve on the Hebra Kedisha, not everybody has the strength for some, you know, has the whatever it is for that. There's some people that can't do other mitzvahs. If a person is good at certain things, that's what they should stress. Obviously, that's what you're meant to do in this world. And every given moment, it's what God sends your way and what are you going to do with it? And that's basically the non-Kabbalistic answer to that question. But now let's ask our four questions on this week's parsha and come up with some great answers. Okay. The question that a lot of Meforshim toy with is the question of, why did Hashem have to bother with nine, pla nine plagues until we get to the real bomb, you know, the 10th plague of Makas Bechoros, of the plague of the firstborn? That was such a huge, um, you know, huge plague that everyone was in terror and then they let us go. Why did we have to go endure? The Makas lasted, I think each one was a week long. And then there was, or they all took, I think, every month, every month of the year, I think it was like 10 months or something, almost a year. The whole plague, all the plagues lasted. By then, by the way, the Jews were not enslaved. We sat there for several months just waiting for the Gula. And they say that's very, that could be what's going to happen this time. People are afraid, oh no, another world war and all that. Could be a world war, but this one we're supposed to sit out. The Jews are not, at least the ones that are deserving, are not going to be in the middle of this whole situation. And, um, uh, you know, like that, 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 that there's going to be a time where we're really just waiting for the gula. And it, it feels like that now when everybody's just sent home and uh, in their warm homes, hopefully everybody should be warm and with their hot drinks, like I see some of you are enjoying. And we're just waiting for the gula. Okay, there's a little bit of static on the line. There are never people sick. There's all kinds of things going on. This is also for free will, but this is how it's supposed to be at the end of days. But why is it that Hashem wanted there to be all these makos? So many, how many lessons can you learn already? Why do we need 10? And, and, and let us out sooner. In fact, in the first parak of Shmos, parak Aleph, Pasuk Vav, 
Paro tells his advisors, let's be smarter than the Jews. Because maybe they'll, they'll multiply and they may add on to our enemies and they may fight with us. He was afraid of us. So how it was, it's incredible. Okay, we know Hashem hardened his heart, but for 10 plagues that he endured until he let us out, amazing. Why did it have to stick out so long? Why schlep it out? Now, and during this time also, by the way, we find that women were having six children at a time. So it was kind of like scary to just watch how the Jews are just multiplying. They say by Mashiach that women are going to be giving birth like, like chickens. In other words, there won't be nine months of pregnancy. And uh, who knows, there may be some uh, famous thing that'll come up to lead us in that way. This whole thing also of him, you know, not wanting to let us out is in contrast to the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, Hashem inspires Koresh, the king of Persia, to let the Jewish people build their second temple. And not only that, not only are they inspired to build the second temple, he even offers them financial co compensation. Why did Hashem in the first exile, which was Mitzrayim, why are you giving us such a hard time? And now with Koresh, it's like, Come on back, everybody. Okay, and it was only 70 years, and they, they offered them financial compensation. He helped them. Question number two. Let's talk about some of the themes in the 10 Makos. Why are there 10? And there's so many different before Shaman. I'm just going to give you a bit of a scope for you to see how, how deep is our Torah. The third question is, we find um, Rashi in, in Perak Yud, Pasuk Yud of this week's Parsha, We're told when they're ready to leave, Paro tells them, see that raw, that evil is opposing them, is opposite them. Now, what does that mean? Rashi explains, Medrashagara, he heard that there's a kocha, there's a star that's called Ra. Paro said, I see with my astrologers that this, that this star, Ra, is going to meet you in the desert, and it's a sign of blood. I see that with my astrologers and Hariga, Dam Bahariga. And when the, and the Jews sinned in the Egel, and Hashem wanted to kill them, Moshe davened for them. He says, why is Mitzrayim going to say, you're going to take them out with the star? So um, Hashem had mercy, and it said he switched the, the blood of the star. Ra, there was a, you know, a, a, an idea, an astrological prediction that they're going to be afflicted with blood. And he switched it to the blood of circumcision and the blood of Korban Pesach. And lo and behold, they left Mitzrayim. What is this whole business of, of, of astrology versus Hashem? And then him turning it around to you know, to having to be a different way rather than the way they predicted it, but it's still according to astrological calculations. How do we understand that? And last but not least, it says when we are finally about to leave Mitzrayim after the, the plagues, right before, you know, the next Parsha is Beshalach. We're in the month of Shvat. Next week is Shavashira Shira and, and, and all the beautiful things of Beshalach. Let's hope that we should be going up Biad Ramah. We find that it says, Atem Yotzim B'chodesh Ha'aviv. You're going out in the springtime. You know, there's a halacha. The reason we have leap years every three plus some odd years is because although we go basically by the lunar calendar, we have to calculate add a lunar month. We have to add a month every like approximately three years in order to have a, the Pesach should always fall out in the spring because it's a, in the Torah, it says in this week's Parsha, you're leaving Chodesh Aviv. You're going to leave, not only is it Tesvav Nisan, but it's also you're leaving in the spring. So when we talk about the spring. Uh, okay, we learn it from there, but Rashi's what we, they didn't know it was the spring. What do you mean? They didn't know you're leaving. It's right now the spring, you're leaving. Per, and Rashi says, you're leaving because it's perfect weather. What's the lesson there? Okay, these are our four questions. Ladies, let's dig into the answers and come out with some amazing, spectacular conclusions. First of all, we have to understand something. Rav Pam Zetzal tells us, in the name of Rav Shleimah Kluger, who wrote a sefer called Imre Shefer, we're told 
you know, if Paro would have been the great emancipator, we'd be indebted to Paro forever. Paro purposely was this evil guy. Like you don't care. It's already like you're tearing your hair out. How can this man, how can this man be our, you know, dominator for so long? Like, it's like we had no affection whatsoever for Paro and we weren't supposed to because otherwise we'd lose the message of Hashem being our emancipator. Someone sent me an email yesterday from this Rabbi Mizrahi, who's a famous speaker. And he said, why does it look now that, you know, everyone thought Trump was going to help the Jewish people. Why is it that Trump is not, does not look right now like the person that is helping the Jewish people? After all, it looked like he was really, some people, he said, even Gematria, we're spelling out the name Trump and Gematria adds up to Mashiach or something like that. He said, because we're supposed to believe in Hashem, not Mashiach. We're not supposed to believe that Trump is going to save us or that any human being other than Hashem and Mashiach Tzikainu is going to save us. That's it. That's the only one that we're supposed to think is going to save us. So this ties in with the whole idea of Paro. In order that Paro, it has to be Ani velo Malach, Ani velo Saraf. Hashem says me and not any angels, no intermediaries. I want you to know it's me, me, me. It's not this one, not that one, not the government, not the politics, not the elections, not anything. It's me, Hashem, and don't allow yourself to believe in any other intermediaries. Also, we happen to be a nation that's ingrained with appreciation. We, you know, we're called Yehudim, Lahodos, means to appreciate. We have so much appreciation. And the whole purpose of leaving Egypt is to appreciate. We have to have no gratitude for this man. He has to be the cruelest person. And Zechar Litzias Mitzrayim, our whole religion is based on a fact that two and a half million people left Mitzrayim, two and a half people got the Torah, and we're not supposed to believe in any intermediary, inter, intermediaries in this event. We have to believe this ain't od mavado, that's it. But why schlep it out? So schlepped it out, made it more and more impossible for us to have any amuna and paro. But we're also schlepped out because there is a purpose of gullus. There is something to be gained by gullus. We have humility. When people are afflicted, they see, you know what? I thought it was so great. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of a little microorganism called the coronavirus. You know, we find people that are, um, you know, like every life is so unpredictable. People thought everything was predictable. They sat back, you know, and they felt they could invest in this. They could invest in that. You don't know what you could do now. You don't know what's going to be in an hour from now, let alone a minute from now. We don't know what's going to be. There's all kinds of thoughts and, and everything is, we hear two opposite opinions about everything in the news. We hear, you know, one person says it's going to be horrible. This person says, no, everything's going to be fine. You'll see, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. There's nothing to believe in Bahashem. There's nothing. That's it. That's all we can believe in. Also, it makes us cry out in prayer. And that's how we have a connection with Hashem. It's a shame that we only call out when we need, you know, something. I always used to say uh, an example that the thing that connects a teenage boy to his mother is her pocketbook because otherwise he'd never call her, you know, like, uh, in fact, if you give your kids too much money, you won't hear from them for longer stretches. If you want to hear from them more frequently, give them less money. Don't give them an unlimited credit card because you won't hear from them forever. You know what I mean? So this is the, just like that. Hashem sticks out. We have to keep praying. He keeps, gives us Saras. Ochatzka Levenshain says the purpose of Tsaras is the purpose of Tsaras is tefillah. We're supposed to daven, davening. That's the whole purpose of any problems we undergo. Without it, and, and he said it's not not we don't pray that Tsaras should end. It's in order to get closer to Hashem. That's what we need. That's the whole purpose of the prayer to begin with. So humility and prayer are just two of the examples of the great gifts that we're given when we undergo any type of suffering. It also makes us realize what life is about, how life is temporary, how nothing really matters, how nothing is that important that we should get so hooked up on it. Cesar of Palms itself, that Koresh was a different story. In the time of Koresh, we were still under foreign domain. He didn't totally free the Jews. When Ezra built the second Beis Amigdash, the second temple, we were still under the dominion of Persian Empire. In fact, there is this amazing um, museum in New York. I wonder if it's still open. The Living Torah Museum. I don't know if any of you have ever gone there. 
if and when New York opens. Maybe they'll just transfer to Eretz Yisrael because we'll all go there with Mashiach, the car of Mamish this week, the today, Metzeshem. Um, but um, the, it was a fantastic museum. If unfortunately our Gullis has to schlep out, it's a great place to visit in the middle of Borough Park. He has all these artifacts that are incredible that, you know, all Torahic things that you, he says, when you touch history, it touches you. So he had a whole model of the second temple that's totally intact. He's had Rabbanim improve it and everything. So a lot of Rabbanim go visit there. They have very, very amazing artifacts. Any case, he, um, he said that in the second temple, when you'd walk in, there was an inscription in Persian. Can you imagine? People don't picture that, the base of Migdash in Paras. You know, you can see it if you have see the Marasamach Pela, where they have all the Arabic uh, writings from our Helega Avais. We have the Arabic scrawl everywhere and the Arabic rugs everywhere. There's still remnants. We're not totally out of Gullus yet. Uh, so too, in the second base of Migdash, everything was written in Persian. Uh, so for us to realize that they, they, they were the bosses, there's no real freedom gained by the second temple. We were allowed to build the temple. That was the main thing. Now, and not only that, when Ezra rebuilt the second temple, only 43,000 people went with him. The Yemenites, there's a whole story with the Yemenites. They didn't want to go. The Ethiopians didn't go for sure. A lot of people didn't want to go. I think there was a certain group of Germans that didn't go. There was apparently Olim, other Piyordim or whatever you want to call them. People left Eretz Yisrael in the first Korban and went to Germany already. And that time there were some very small population, but the people didn't come back. They didn't believe in it. Not everyone went with him. And the second temple did not have daily miracles. Um, a lot of um, major vessels were concealed. I didn't get the chance to look this up. I'm going to ask my my uh, rabbinic uh, advisors about this in Yuma Chafalov somewhere. There's some artifacts of the second temple that were concealed. And we didn't have Nebuah anymore in the, in the second base of Migdash. So he says like this. So when the second temple was built, there were, in fact, people, the older people that were there by the first base of Migdash, they were crying. Can you imagine when they saw the ba second base of Migdash rebuilt, they were crying because they remembered the first one. That's the difference between the first and the second. And therefore, Koresh wasn't cruel and mean, and he did open up his pocketbook. Why? Because we should appreciate Koresh, because there wasn't a real Geula. When there's a geula, it has to only be us and Hashem. There can't be any intermediaries. There can't be anybody in the middle. That's how we're supposed to view the geula. It has to be direct. Rafam continues, and this was in his day. This is maybe said 20 years ago. And he says that in his day, you'd think after the Holocaust, there'd be so many people sympathetic to the state of Israel. Now, by the way, just interesting uh, little tidbit here. The Chafetz Chaim, when he heard about the Balfour Declaration, he was so happy. He said, we see that something is coming together, that we see that sign from Hashem that the Mashiach is on his way. But not nobody said that in 1948. They said that in the Balfour Declaration. They didn't say that in 1948 because there was... The, 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 the whole state of Israel, we believe a lot of people are under the impression, you know, a lot of the leaders are, are anti-Torah. Anti There's a lot of anti-Torah sentiments going on. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's not yet the Geula. And he said, "There's so much. can you imagine after the Holocaust, people should have a conscience, they should feel guilty. But so many people were united against the Jewish people in the United Nations. You know, even this, they, this little tiny corner they won't let us have. Really, he said the Palestinians could all move to Saudi Arabia. There'd be plenty of room for them there. There'd be plenty. I know, Lawrence, I see your expressions. Mwah. Anyways, so the, um, they, but they, we only want our homeland, you know, that they, they, you know, we, we just wanted our homeland. That's it. And, and, and he said, why is it that we have the United Nations? They almost do nothing. Later on, when Michelle will come and all the nations were saying, yes, we, we were in favor of the Jewish people. Oh yeah, the resolutions were almost unanimous, unanimous. That they, you know, this Israel's guilty of this, Israel's guilty of that, Israel's guilty of this, you know? So nobody could claim credit for the Geula. And that's what it is. And no, not even Trump, not even anybody, the way things look ain't owed there's no one else to look at. And we're supposed to believe 
Aramuna, we said all these parshas are of Amuna next week as well. Different, we're different aspects of Amuna we're touching on. Some of you have heard this story before, but there's many of you who are joining us for the first time. So we're going to repeat this because this is a phenomenal story and it's true. I saw it in a safer, no less. I didn't see this in some crazy uh, account of something. This is well-documented event having to do with that we're supposed to believe in Yetzirah Mitzrayim and it's the cornerstone of our faith. And that's why there can only be a Shem and we can't have any trust in Cairo whatsoever. So we've answered our first question. Rav Box, who was the Rashiv of Detroit, he was a mirror who escaped, who was one of the people escaped in Shanghai. That by itself, that in alone in itself, you know, is quite a saga. Uh, if any of you, it's, it's a fascinating period. Any of you that are not familiar with it, unbelievable story of how the entire Mir Yeshiva, bar none, escaped Lithuania in the Nazi jowls or the Nazi claws, whatever you want to call it. They all escaped. They had, they were in first Kobe, Japan, then they went to China and the bar none, there was no seat. And there was, there was, they went, they got this shul that someone in a dream told his son to build. Uh, and then there were only elderly Jews praying there, but they made like 450 seats and every single seat was just enough for the Mary Yeshiva to sit there. Unbelievable, whole period with Rav Chatzka Levenstein, who was such a mammon. There, I don't know if there's anyone that was a mammon like Rav Chatzka in our generation. Holy Kaddish, Kaddish, Kaddish man. Uh, very, very high. They have a biography by the original title, Reb Chatzkel. I, re I really give big advice. If you want to read a great biography to see how far away we are from holiness, read Reb Chatzkel. Excellent. It's one of my top 10 favorites. Any case, um, so Reb Chatzkel led the mirror out with total amuna the whole time saying that we have to learn Torah nonstop for our brethren that are suffering in the Holocaust. And they really, all Rosh Hashivas came out of that, 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 that time and place. He had them going round the clock and they were really a holy group. And almost anybody today that's a who's who came from the mirror in Shanghai. Anyways, during this, uh, it, after the war, Rav Chatzkel became the Mashkiach of Panavish Yeshiva. He was before Rav Dessler, right before. Holy man. There are people that said, if you want to learn Amuna, just go here as Shiram. Anyways. So Rabax kept up with him. That was his Rebbe. And when the, um, in 1951, there was a news report of a young baby who was spouting Torah. They called him the Anuka. And he was born to a Bells family, Belzer Hasidim. And um, the word had it that this child, um, first of all, he was missing the pinch on his lip. You know, there's a Kabbalistic thing that when you learn, you know, in your mother's womb, Torah for nine months to make you forget the Malach gives you a little pinch. And so you shouldn't uh, remember your Torah. This child didn't seem to have a pinch and this child, they'd go to him, they'd start a Gemara, he'd finish it. All over Shas. Now how could a three, four, you know, whatever, I don't know what age he was exactly. A young, young child. He knew the Gemara by heart. The whole Talmud, Yerushalmi, Bavli, everything. And it, it was highly documented. So Rav Box wrote a whole letter to his Rebbe. I saw it at this week's partial. That's where I'm quoting it now. And um, he asks his Rebbe, first he says, like, you know, are we supposed to believe such a thing? What is this? Like, what are we supposed to do with this event? He said, we should publicize it maybe everywhere. Then everyone will believe in Hashem. And, um, and Rav Chatzkel said, I know this family. I, they live two doors away from my children in B'nai Brak. And apparently, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think he's alive anymore, but they do know who he was and everything. I mean, it was documented. He said, and I'm telling you, he said that um, this person was, um, he, he said, no, he says, you know, he, I saw, he, he told Rav Chasko, uh, should I come to see this child? It'll maybe increase my amuna. It'll help me with amuna. I should go see him. I should see such an amazing phenomena. Maybe I should go there myself. Maybe we should publicize it. Rav Chasko says, I thought about it, but as for me, it would be an insult um, it, 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 we're supposed to see we're supposed to believe in the Mesorah we're supposed to believe that the Torah was handed down traditionally how could I go and go to B'nai Brak to see this child when I know there was Yisiyah Smitzrayim I don't need that to see a child to prove it to me I don't want a child to prove it to me I want to prove it to myself we already know that Hashem did the miracle once two and a half million people witnessed it we don't have to go and have a Yanuka tell me 
So that he didn't go because Rav Haskell told him he's not going. And what happened was apparently that the Belzer Rebbe came to him and said, Ginuk, and the child stopped spouting Torah. And um, uh, the, the man grew up to be an average man, living, working man, supporting his family. And uh, I don't know how many years ago he passed away, but it was well known in the Israeli world at the time. But the point is that two and a half million people witnessed Yitzhak's Mitzrayim. Bach said when he was in Shanghai, there was, you know, Chinese are very into wisdom, you know, as are the Koreans. And um, he asked people, you know, they have three million years of Chinese history that they're all basing themselves on. By the way, you know, in the market now, like for antiques, you know, since there's so many wealthy Chinese, they're buying out everything. Chinese historic of things are very valuable. So in any case, that he asked these Chinese scholars, or Box wanted to know, do you believe in the exodus from Egypt? Do you have records of it? And they said, we do. And remember, the Chinese are primarily Buddhists. They don't even believe in God. They believe in idols, you know? And the Muslims, they believe in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. It's in their Quran. The Christians believe in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So we have to work on believing Yitzhak Mitzrayim because our fathers, our forefathers, our foremothers, whatever you want to call them, <clears throat> they told us about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. We have to believe in it. We have to believe it's true. We have to believe that it happened. By the way, this idea that a child learns all Torah in his mother's womb is in Gemara Nida. It's not like some Kabbalistic thing. It's a Gemara that, uh, that we believe we learned the whole Torah. The reason why we did that is because implanted in a human being, in, in your innermost core is the Torah. You are a holy being inside. We have to forget it. There's darkness. That's really what the mission in life is. There's so much darkness. We have to still manifest a Muna even when things seem dark and even when things don't make any sense. But Yitzhak Mitzrayim was an event based on right now, our Muna means that we're supposed to base ourselves on historic event that occurred and that we have to implant it deeply in our hearts and, and make it real for ourselves. Make it real. It's real. You know what Rochatzko used to do? And I told you he was the mammon. People heard him moving chairs around. He would pretend to go through the Amsuf. He would reenact for himself the whole Yitzhak Mitzrayim because he felt that it was, uh, it was important to really internalize that concept. And as we said last week, Emuna is not something that comes out of air. People are not born as Maminim. And we have it deep inside with Hakar Satov. Hakar Satov leads you to Emuna to appreciate but we have to we have to work on it. Talk about his miracles. Make it in a real for us. You know, Hamantiki um, Adaber. Another pasuk can tell him. I had a muna because I spoke. Speak about it. Rabbi Victor Miller used to take his students and stop and stare at a rose bush for who knows how long. He'd say, "Look at all the thorns, so we shouldn't hurt the rose bush. Look how there's so much plan and purpose in everything that's created in this world." And that we have things around us at all times to, re to, to, you know, to astound us, to, be it a tree, be it a bird, be it anything in our world. We have so many things that can help us with our Muna, but we have to talk about it. We have to internalize it. We have to think about it. We could write about it. It's not going to come by itself. We have to work on it. Now, let's take up different approaches to the Makos just to give you some scope, some feeling. We're not Torah scholars here. But just to get, but there are Torah scholars, and let's see what they've done with some of these idea. Now, let's take some basic. Rav Sadia Gon says there are four elements, you know, in the world. There's earth, earth, water, air, and fire. So he says from the earth came the shchin, you know, came the, the, they somehow came up from the boils, the kinim, the 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 uh, lice, and also. The, all the wild animals like are, are earthy. From the water, are these waters is the water itself turning to blood? We have the the frogs, they're water creatures, and the barad was precipitation with water. And then with air, we have the darkness, we have the um, the plague of the sickness, the pestilence on the animals, and we have the locusts. They all came from the air. And then Makis Bacharos was fire, but the the barad had a little bit of fire in it as well. Just give you some idea. You don't have to, you know. Um, second idea, this is very easy to remember, is the stiplers. The Kronel of Rachel gives a very easy to remember uh, thing about all the Makos. We find um, the stipler says, 
Hashem wanted to prove to us by these 10 makos, this is not just for Paro, you know, this is for us. We needed to work on our Muna during this time. That's what it was for. We had to work on a Muna. We had to keep seeing how he says no, that the great Egyptian culture is disappointing us. It's not there for us when we need it. With all their brilliance and all their everything, they weren't there. They're not helping us. Governments are not helping us. Doctors even, we can't trust. We can't trust anybody. Also, but there's a thing with, um, um, you know, the Makos were for the Jews to keep seeing that God can do anything. And the stifler says, Hashem covered every base when he struck us with the plagues. Dam, the Nile was it for the Egyptians. This was what made them rich to begin with. They had a, all irrigated uh, land. It was a country that felt they had it all. By attacking the Nile, Hashem says, I'm in control of the water. By attacking the frogs, by bringing on the frogs rather, Hashem says, I'm, control, I'm in control of aquatic creatures. I'm controlled of marine life. I'm not only in control of water, says the stipler, I'm also in control of all the life in the water. When he got to Kenim, Hashem says, I'm in control of ground creatures. I'm in control of lice, which are the most minute creatures in the ground. Arov, which is the mixture of the wild animals infiltrating cities, urban areas. This is, I'm in control of animal life. When Hashem brought pestilence, he says, I'm not only in control of animal health, I'm in control of animal life and death. When it came to the plague of boils, I'm in control of human health. When it came to the plague of precipitation, barad, Hashem says, I'm in control of the weather. When it control, can Hashem, when Hashem brought the plague of darkness, Hoshech, I'm in control of the luminaries, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And when it came to last plague of Makis Bacharos, I'm in control of man's life. So we see this everything covered. Like it was plan and purpose, these Makos. It wasn't just all these horrible things occurring. It was totally orchestrated in a way that it was, you know, we've just seen two opinions so far, that of being the four elements. And now the stipler telling us that every aspect of life on this earth was basically demonstrated to be powerless compared to Hashem. Now, another explanation. I just thought I'd give you three or four just to show you that there's, wow. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. We probably could do just that, but I want to change our lives. That's what I'm here for. But we do have every once in a while, I want to stop and smell the roses and see how the Torah is so brilliant and so beautiful. Um, now, there's there's three things that the Egyptians did to us, says Rav Shemshin Rafal Hirsch. Those three steps were called Gerus. Gerus means that Hashem made us strangers in the land, right? That was the first step of our horrible um, afflictions. The second thing was servitude, abdus. And the third thing was inui, affliction. So three stages. Gerus is already when we all went down to Egypt. Abdus being slaves and then the afflictions, you know, they beat us or whatever else, the, the horrible life that we had to live in Egypt. Now, those three things were were showed that this is a mita connected mita, according to Rav Hirsch. Everything they did to us, God is paying them back to show that anything you do, you'll have to give an accounting for. Nothing is for naught. God notices everything we do and don't think that you can get away with it. So when God estranged us, it's very interesting that um, says Rav Hirsch, Um, you know, in, in the Haggadah, there's a Rabbi Yehuda, and he said there's an acronym for the plagues. Rabbi Yehuda, Nosein Bahem Tzimanen, Datsach, Adash, Ba'achav. He gave them, right, he combined them three categories, right? There's three different, now there's a lot on that too, by the way. Each one of those categories says something different. So here's Rav Hirsch's thing, that the... Um, the first plague of all these three categories, you remember it's like nine plus the, the firstborn. So for the nine, the, um, the first of each one of the three sections, whether it's blood, blood is making uh, them not feel comfortable. The Nile, you know, everyone went down to the Nile. It was the Niagara Falls of, the, of Egypt or is more. It was the, the place the tourist attraction, the center of all their economy, everything was, was the, the Nile. 
It estranged us. All of a sudden, the Nile is not appealing anymore. By the way, the Eben Ezra is the only commentary that says that the, the, the Makos, the Jews received as well. But every other commentary says basically that, you know, that we, we didn't receive these plagues. Anyways, Arov, that is the first of that second category of Datsach, Achash, Bachav, Datsach, yeah, Adash, Bachav. The, um, the Arov, the, the, the animals, um, it, people felt like they were safe in urban centers. They're, they're, you know, they're basically safe. And all of a sudden you see a lion walking down, you know, Lawrence Avenue. It's a little bit frightful. You know, you don't expect them to be there. It's like, uh, you know, you lose your, your, your strangers in your own city. You know, this is for the Egyptians, but also for us. This is also showing Hashem is giving them back measure for measure what they did to us. And then Ba'achav, the last grouping, Barad, Hashem did the, the plague of hail. And that was to show, you know, you kind of trust the climate. Like you don't think, you know, climate is supposedly one way. Like Toronto, you're assuming there's going to be snow. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not in Toronto. We have a very mild winter. Hashem is having mercy on us, despite all the other things we're going through, that in Toronto, at least, it's not a normal winter so far. So far, I'm, I don't want to speak too soon. But so far, it's unbelievable. January was not what it usually is, in my memory, at least. So the climate, which you are so used to, all of a sudden, you get hail, fire, and water mixed together in an ice pellet. Like, you know, nobody expects that, especially, you know, whatever. Now, Abdus, that the thing of God, you know, they enslaved us. So there were three Makkas in the same, um, you know, in the same uh, ascending order uh, of the second grouping to go against the idea of being uh, uh, enslaved. Svardea, we find the frogs, small creatures, like all of a sudden, usually you are in charge of the small creatures. You squish them if you're cruel, whatever. But here, they're in charge of us, you know what I mean? Dever um, is the pestilence. People had, you know, they had some kind of feeling of strength that they had their 20 cows and their 30 donkeys or whatever it was that they owned in their property. And all of a sudden, they're all uh, afflicted. You know, they're all afflicted, they, they, you know. And then the third thing is the wealth. The locust consumed everything up. You know, it's a very famous thing that they happened. You know, they consumed only, we found out Egypt, Egypt's borders were decided. There was a dispute over the borders because it was exactly um, measured out by the Arbet, by the locust. So that was by the Abdus. And then we find that the affliction, we find, you know, the first of, uh, the last of every three in the group in Kinim, the, the, the lice, our bodies were afflicted um, by the lice. Shechin, another of the boils, our bodies were afflicted. Choshech, there's nothing as afflicting as not being able to see. They say blind is much worse than deaf. There's no, there's no, no, no question about it. It's Kashif Kameis, a person that's blind, Lo'alenu, can't see. There's supposed to be a phenomenal blind museum in Tel Aviv, which means to Shem, when we all go to Israel, we'll, um, we'll all check it out together, um, where apparently, you know, you really can feel for a person how difficult it is to cross the street and to go into a store and all the things that they have to go through because it's a horrible thing not to be able to see another person. You know, that's, that's the worst thing, that they really feel totally alone. And then Makis Bechorus, of course, is torture. But if that, that because they did those things to us, Geirus, Avdus, and Inui, they uh, estranged us, they enslaved us, and they afflicted us. We see those three categories mirrored in sequential order, says Reverse, uh, um, in the Datsach Adash Ba'achav, which is phenomenal, unbelievable. A fourth opinion, and the last, so we're going to get into life-changing stuff after this, but this is life-changing too. I just don't want to dwell too long on Lom Um, And the fourth uh, approach to this is Meshachachma says that Datsach, that the, um, that the first grouping was the water and the dry land, the second grouping was in the land itself, and the third was the air that I surround you, I'm surrounding you everywhere. The, um, now, Rav Shimshon Pincus, we're getting a little bit more modern time and he's gonna bring it home for us and give us some uh, feeling to how we should have our amuna. He says, before every single one of the groupings, Hashem warned us what we were supposed to learn. These were lessons for life, these makos. The first group, 
you know, he'd see Paro at the Nile, you know, ostensibly. Imagine a person willing to harm his health in order to proclaim himself a god. He doesn't let himself use the facilities, only goes privately in the morning. Can you imagine just the, the no one should get, God forbid, the inkling that he happens to be human. That's unbelievable if you think about it. And we could, people go to some stupid things like that too. The one analogy is women in high heels. Look what women do to kill themselves. <laughs> to wear high heels. Like if a person can't wear them, don't wear them. Why do you have to kill yourself for in order to <laughs> look a certain way? You know what I mean? You know, if I'm not saying everyone does that, but and then some other people do something in the name of whatever it is that we don't want to be found out. But in any case, the first warning before the first grouping, the first three, Hashem says to tell Paro, Bezos Hashem. With this, you will know I'm the God. I, I exist and that I created everything, not you. Right. So the first three Makos teach us a lesson is that really um, all things are really God. God knows about everything that's going on. Hashem, Hashem created everything. The second grouping, he tells Paro, Laman Teda, Kyan Hashem, the care of Haaretz. I am Hashem in the midst of the land, meaning... I have what's called hashkacha pratis. I have personal uh, supervision over everything in this world. Everything that occurs is under my dominion. And I, I didn't fall asleep at the wheel. I didn't fall asleep when Biden got elected. I know Florence is going to make a face, so forget it. But anyways, but the um, I did not. I did not. I'm here. I'm here. I've been here. I'm here, and I'm dealing with everything. And I know each person what they need. We're going to talk next week. I want to talk more about Ashkacha Pratis. I have a whole mimer to bring to you from Rebiruchim Lavav. It's very famous, deep as it, as it is, but I felt I had enough to say this week. I didn't want to include it. And the and the third thing is, um, the third time he says, by the last three plagues, at last four, Ein Kamoni Bechol Haaretz, there's no one like me, meaning there is no nature at all. In case you forgot and think that nature exists, I want you to know, don't even bother with nature. These are all puppets. Hashem is running the whole show, no matter how it looks at the time. Not only is he intimately involved in our lives, but that he is all that counts. Everything else doesn't matter. So this a formula applies in our lives. And I venture to say maybe it parallels Melech Ozer, Umoshia, Umagain. You'll see in a minute. So Shimpinkas explains how we understand this is levels of bitachon. He simplifies it and says there's three levels. Let's say he says a man can't pay his debts. The lowest level is Davin, I'm gonna Davin, Hashem is gonna help me pay my debts. The second level, if you say there's there's you should know Ani Hashem if you're gonna be a higher level, you should feel Hashem gave you the debts to begin with. Don't think I need Hashem now to get me out of the debts. He got me in debt to begin with in order that I should turn to him because I need him desperately. And the highest level would be all is good. Hashem knows what's going on. I'll do my best, but uh, Hashem's running the show. I don't have to worry. Those are the three levels of bitachem. And many of us are maybe struggling with level two, but we're definitely not at level three. The stock market up and downs. He gives another example. Some people say, Davin, don't listen. And then uh, the third thing is, look, Hashem made the stock market crash and go up. And then the next thing is Hashem is really hiding himself. He's camouflaged. That's the highest level. And that's the level that we're supposed to strive for. When we find the plagues, as Roshim Shem Pincus, the first two plagues, Paro's uh, magicians could duplicate. And because we are supposed to have free will, they said we could do the same idea, even though they couldn't totally um, do it on the same same scope, they could do replicate it. The third, kinim, they couldn't do it all because kinim is smaller than, I think, a barley or a lentil. If it's smaller than a lentil, then magicians have no jurisdiction. And um, that's when the, the magician said, this is the hand of God, this is the finger of God here by the third plague. But for the second group already, when you they, they couldn't do any of this. When the, the jungle was emptying out, it was totally unnatural. You know, usually animals don't go to the cities that are occupied. They're afraid. And then when you have Dever, like, you know, the whole man, everyone's afflicted like that. All the, all, every single animal at once. 
and then shin, everyone gets boils, it was not duplicated. That means that means God's very intimately involved. And the last group, when you have opposing forces like hail and Arba, they said there never will be the scope of Dokus like there was in Egypt. And also Choshech is everywhere, is unnatural. This, then they all agreed that this was, and even the Bacharos, that only one person in a family that happens to be, you know, discernible, it has to be exactly the child born first of the mother and as the, you know, I can't have been born cesarean, you know, they even found out some illegitimate children that way, but this is like incredible. Then you see Ein Kamoni Bechol Haaretz. For Jews, we're supposed to internalize this concept for, uh, this is the concept forever to internalize. And we need it so badly in our days. The idea that, um, you know, that, that Hashem is in charge of everything and it, it should make us definitely increase our humility and increase our davening power and make us better people. For Marcus Bachoros, says for Shimshon Pincus, the whole idea there, the message there, which is a single out of, how did you internalize what I just taught you as human beings? That was the message of the last Maka. And Paro was want to say, Hatasi hapam. I sinned just this once, albeit by accident. Here, daily basis, he slaughtered Jewish babies and bathed in their blood and all kinds of other things that horrible things that he did with the servitude and everything. And yet he never saw him. He couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't self-introspect. Uh, he couldn't look at himself. We are supposed to have that power. We're supposed to look at ourselves. We have to introspect. We have to think about what are we doing? Are we, are we, where's my Amuna right now? And it, we all can improve, all of us. It's a lifetime work. The Briska Ruff says even after Mashiach, we're going to have to work on Amuna because there's going to be things we don't understand. Nothing is, on, we're not Hashem, you know, only Hashem understands Hashem. So we have to, we have to work on ourselves to try to make ourselves positive, to see the beauty in nature, to see that how Hashem is involved in ourselves. And we should try to like every day recount things that we can internalize about how Hashem is running our lives at all times. Rav Dessler um, explains to us following this concept of the Makos and following the concept that we spoke about of the different bitachan you can get from the Makos and the lessons in Amuna that the Makos provide for us. We have to answer now our third question, which is, I see Ra before you. What does it mean, I see Ra before you? that the star of Ra was going to turn, it was against the Jewish people, it's going to turn into, it was going to be blood, but Moshe Davin, so then it became only the blood of Mila and the Dham of Pesach. What does that mean? So says Rav Dessler, a beautiful, brilliant point. He says, what is it? He says like this, there's a Mechilta that says, Lo nitna Torah lidrosh, ela le'ochle haman. The Torah wasn't given for interpretation, except in the desert by the people that ate the manna. Why was it only in the desert? So says Rav Dessa, Torah cannot be given in Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was like a bathroom. Maybe it's very similar to our culture too. That, you know, it does, Torah does not deserve to be given in a place where there's so much evil and immorality and all kinds of horrific things going on and around it. Torah has to be pure, but we can't enter Eretz Yisrael until we have Torah because you need it for Eretz Yisrael as well. So what did we need? We needed first to um, get it in the Midbar, but there's a deeper level here. The Torah really seems impossible to maintain. That's the deeper level. Says Rav Dessler, if you look at it from, a, <laughs> from an exterior vantage point, it seems impossible that we should be able to keep Torah institutions. There's almost no Torah institution that is not in debt. I remember Phyllis Friedman told me years ago that one of the only places where yeshivas had a, like a, a debt-free balance was in Rome. But um, <laughs> apparently Rome doesn't have like a great, right now, I mean, in our days, Rome doesn't have like a world famous yeshiva right now. I don't think they have like much of a great population, but the Torah was always miraculous. The Chavaz Chaim said it at a convention of rabbis, you know, the Torah does never makes any sense that it should be, it, it, who can ever, nobody can afford the tuition and they're always struggling and they're always in debt. Hello, Debbie, it's nice to see you. I'm so happy you're here. I, I, anyway, so the, um, 
the, you know, it seems like the Torah is impossible to maintain. It doesn't make any sense that we should be able to keep the Torah. We don't have a balanced budget. That's why we say on Shabbos, whoever deals with the Jewish community, helping them, like whatever you're doing, you're helping for the poor, you're helping for the sick, you're helping in Chaveirim, you're helping in Hatzalah. Why? Because nothing having to do with Torah ever gets proper payment. Nothing. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. Nothing, you know, the more significant you are to the Torah world, the less money you make. That's how it usually works. That's how it usually works. Okay, there's a few exceptions here and there, you know, but it's still like uh, for the most part, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't stand, you know, it doesn't make any sense that it should stand. Paro looked at the, at, at the natural horoscope of the Jews. It looked in astrology as if the Jews are not, they, they have blood all over them. They don't deserve to be alive. And we didn't by the Cheta Ego. We didn't deserve to be alive. We can't succeed. But we believe that a Jew can overcome his nature. With, um, uh, that that we, we live in a miraculous way to begin with. The whole history of the Jews has been miraculous. Who would have thought, you know, there's this famous, famous story. Maybe you heard it, maybe you didn't hear it. That Rav that Rav Elio Mer Blach, the Rashiva of Tells Cleveland, and um, right after the war, when he came here, he was looking for, I think it was a Katsos, if I'm not mistaken, Katsos HaKoshen, Katsos Mishpat, I don't know, I think it's Katsos HaKoshen, or was it a Minchas I don't know, that shows how up I am on either one of those two Sforum, but whatever it was, it was something I learned a lot in Tells, I think it's the Katsos, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, Revelia Mer Blach went into a bookstore, a Jewish bookstore in the 1940s in New York, looking for this safer. And the owner said, oh, I think I have one up way high. And he brushed off the cobwebs off of it and the dust. And he says, this is probably the last one you're going to see in America. This is right after World War II. And <laughs> we have a plethora of Svarim today. We, have, we're, we are flooded with, with the Svarim all over the place. Whoever thought, uh, yes, we come from Akaros. That's, thank you, Mrs. Blau. Um, we all come, who thought Avram would ever have a child? That um, we, we, there are a lot of things that we just are just defy anything that makes any sense. Our whole nation defies, defies the world. So Paro just looked at the, the regular world. And according to the regular world, there's a lot of blood, but the blood, we did have blood, but the blood we used as Mila. And we, we the same thing, you know, it looks like the Jews aren't gonna exist in yeshivas. They manage, we go above, we're above nature. We, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, let's say on a low level, person says, I'm gonna give up Shabbos to, to make a living. It's the best day of the week that I make the best parnasa. But we say you go opposite, Hashem is gonna help you. You know, we believe we have to go against nature and, and we have to not let nature get in our way. That highest level that we spoke about, a bitachem from Hashem Shem Pinkas, the highest level is feeling it's that only Hashem rules, not to get stuck in the weeds with nature, not letting nature get in our way, but we have to work on it. We have to look at everything around us and see the beauty in our lives, see the miracles, how when people, let's say, can't breathe and they have a ventilator, the miracle of breathing, how we take for granted that we can breathe. You know, they asked Rav, Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, Shlita, they asked him, how are you happy during these times? He says, I'm alive. Like, look at us, we're all here, we are all alive. Do you know how many people we've lost this year? You know, that we, we're alive, it's, we have to see, we have to see the beauty in what we do have. We have to focus on what we do have. We have to increase our moon and realize Hashem is really pulling all the strings, ain't come only Now to answer the last question, we're again bringing you something from Chaim Minshlita from Staten Island and the famous head of the URA organization. He says, one way to, to another way to enhance our belief that all is Hashem and without help is look at details. If a, when the Jews had to leave Mitzrayim, you think they could care less what month of the year it would be? But we're promised by Aviv, we're going to be leaving Mitzrayim in the spring. Hashem, and, and Rashi says Hashem wanted us to have pleasant weather. But we have to believe that every detail of Hashgacha Pratis is carried out. And that every single detail God planned, not just are we leaving, we're leaving with the whole deal, with the whole, we're leaving Biyad Ramah with up, you know, in the middle of the day, 
in the middle of the day, two and a half million people exit Egypt, bar none. And all the miracles that we saw at the same time, the weather had to be pleasant. And we see that in the Midbar life, they had the clouds of glory around them. So you'd never see a single bug. Imagine how women must have rejoiced. We never had to do laundry. We never had to use the bathroom. All the 40 years, the man, the Mayan, all those things that they were unbelievable miracles. That's it illustrate to us how we're supposed to live our lives and that Enod Milvado. Now, he says also, this is an aside, but it's an important thing to pick up. Rav Dessler talks a lot about if your person wants to be more of a mom, and Rav Dessler says you have to have more chesed. Why? Because in chesed, you notice the detail, you notice the other. Rav Dessler says as many places. He says, like, a person could sit and hold a sitter, Heint bis Morgan, as they say, from today till tomorrow, but you could not talk to Hashem for one second. Our heads are elsewhere. Our heads are in the middle of what we're doing in the next three hours. But if a person is accustomed to not thinking of themselves, they're looking at what do they, they need? What does this person need? Then they can perceive the other, meaning Hashem. And he says, like, one way to get chesed is the hakarasatov. You know, hakarasatov is, is appreciating, shows I didn't just say, oh, it's I'm entitled. It's coming my way. I'm saying, no, I owe you something for this. I really want to give you something because I feel grateful. Grat gratitude is a, is a kindness. It's a, so he said, it's a big, you sowed here. Hashem not only took us out, but gave us all this, you know, all the, uh, what's it called? The bells and whistles. We also see Moshe's teaching us how to, uh, you know, th this is how we're supposed to be mock your tov. If we want to do something for another person, think of the details. We're going to do chesed. It's so important not to embarrass. That's, that's the minimum. Not to embarrass somebody we're going to help. Like try to avoid minimizing embarrassment. Try to think of little details that would make somebody be happy. It doesn't always have to be big things. The little things too. You know, here's the Yisod, says Rashim Shem Pincus, and understanding the afterbrach of Borei Nefashos. It says, Borei Nefashos Rabos V'chesronan, which literally means you created many souls and what they lack. He says that means bread and water. Thank you, Hashem. I quenched my thirst and I satiated myself. Um, I'll call Masha Barasa. What's that? That's for all the luxuries. Every single animal has what it needs to sustain itself. That appreciation we're supposed to have, that's it all in the details. All in the details of what Hashem gave us, all the details that we have to start noticing in, in our lives of all the details that we have. So we'll start having, strengthening our amuna to deserve me Hashem Mashiach Tzidkenu and all the details of what we're given. Rabbi Sorrell Salanter said, this world is like an expensive hotel. That the only, and, and, and you know, and, and we owe a lot. So we, it's all in the details. You know, we can all just say, thanks for the water Hashem, goodbye. I'll, I'll remember you when I'm sick. Or we can think about the tiny details. I read two amazing things this week in the Ated. Since I know a lot of you don't read the Ated, I get to tell you the stories from the Ated. So if you do, then you'll have to hear it again. But I thought it was they were inspiring. One was a story that these are accurate accounts by people that were reported. There is a man that owned a plumbing company somewhere in New York. I see the light is changing on this thing, so I don't know how to get the same light, but okay, it looks mysterious. Um, the um, the, the, there was a person that owned a plumbing company in New York and this man decided he had a lot of different employees and he decided that what he was going to do was that he was going to, um, by no matter what, no matter who, his first day, the first part of his morning is going to start out like a yid should. He was going to go to Minion before he ended up on the scene of the, the plumbing situation. And this is only when he had a few workers. Because sometimes plumbers have to show up at six o'clock in the morning. There could be an emergency. So he employed several plumbers under him, but he would not. And he, and he felt it's very important to be on the job as the boss because the, the workers do much better when the boss is there. But he felt, I'm not going to work until I go to a proper minion where they're, they dive in. Oh, I know what's wrong. But, yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. So um, the, um, he said he's not going to show up to work until he goes to shul. He davens. He says some Tehillim. He learns with Chavrusa for an hour and then he'll go to work. So sometimes he'd be there 10 o'clock on the job and some of these workers were there at sunrise, but he felt that's, the, the, you can imagine a lot of people and they 
have money, the first thing they do is they try to say how often I could get away to Miami or wherever else in the world. His first thing was, no, I, Hashem is first in my life. I want to show him my allegiance. So he did that, except one occasion. One night, his daughter had a double ear infection. His wife had been like sleepless for nights with it. So he decided that he's that night going to be up with his daughter, you know, while she's getting over the ear infection. So he was with his daughter and he said, she didn't fall asleep till three o'clock in the morning. Six o'clock, he gets a, a call on his work phone, which he said was very unusual. And it was one of the new hires who said, boss, we have a major problem, something major. You got to get over here right away. So he was so tired and confused from not having slept. He ran over to the work site and it turned out there was um, a major wind. They, he, he worked primarily in new house, houses that were being built or in total plumbing renovations. So he was there and they said they did forgot to close some windows and the pipes were all um, coming out of where they were planted the night before, which was a major rehaul, major. He gets there, they're scurrying around and um, they can't, they can't get some of the pipes back. Some of them actually split in half. He has a, so he remembered he had a truck with this $50,000 machine that helps solder pipes and, 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 and take away, take away rather the soldering from pipes so they can re-solder it. So he had somebody go get the, the, the truck uh, from this other site that they're working on. They brought it over and they started working on it. And he says, you know what? It's getting so, and it was major work involved. Somebody was drunk on the job. There was all kinds of things he had to deal with. And he says, oh my goodness, it's 1030. I have to go to Minion. So he, he says, I'm sorry. I'm going to, all of you take three hours off. I'm going to Minion because the machine failed to work. That, that $50,000 machine, which was brand new, by the way, didn't work. Nothing was working. He said, you know why this is happening? I didn't daven first. So he goes to Shul. He found, thank God, there was a brisk that day in Shul. Because of that, they had a late minion. I guess he was Hasidish, so he wasn't so mocked on the times. Um, and he, he, you know, he, he went to the minion. He, what's it called? He, afterwards, he, um, he said his Tehillim. He learned for an hour. He bought his wife a healthy breakfast at a takeout because she hadn't slept so many nights. And he himself got himself a breakfast. Then he went back to the site. When he got there, they had gotten the machine to work. The pipes were all replaced and they were ahead of schedule. And he said he learned from that that we have to daven first. That Hashem is really in charge. And when you lose sight of that, then things don't go, they don't go the right way. There's one other thing to show. I want to tell another story I heard from Nita, a little bit not, not relevant, but it's a great story. And I thought I it's also relevant because of a timely. You know, Sunday was the yard site of the Bahalaga, Halaga Babasali. And um, we know that at the Babasali's yard site, the, um, you know, that people come and everything is all kind of, because he did perform many miracles in his day, right? Many, many miracles. Anyway, so the, um, uh, apparently, oh, someone, okay. Anyway, so the Babasali was, um, that, that there was a bucher sitting on a bus in Israel years ago. And he, um, when he was sitting on this bus, he, he what's it called? He, 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 he noticed there were, he had to go, he was going to the Shiva. He was, he's by, he was in Nitivat, the same city as the Babasali. So he was traveling to Nitivat and he's sitting there on the, you know, in one of the front rows of the bus. And he said there was people not dressed properly and it was a three hour ride. And so he decided he's going moving to the back of the bus. So he sat in the back of the bus and he falls asleep. And lo and behold, he sees that there are, um, he has a dream that under his seat is a bomb and it's going to explode. And he wakes up with a start and he looks, there is a bag under his seat and, but it looks like it has sour grapes in it. So, but then he looks and he notices two wires sticking out. So he immediately goes to the front of the bus. He tells the bus driver, the bus driver pulls to the side of the road, tells everybody to disembark and they call the police. And the bomb squad came out and defused the bomb. There was actually a bomb on that bus. And he goes in to the, he, deci he, he decides that, you know, this is a message. He goes straight to the Baba Sali and tells him what happened. And the Baba Sali said it was in the merit of your watching your eyes, guarding your eyes from seeing something immoral that you, you had the merit to save the whole bus. 
Um, so, you know, that's incredible. <laughs> and um, it's just to tell us that a person has a lot of power. Let's remember our davening, we have the power. Our tefillos are so powerful. Even Paro was told not to daven. He was told not, Paro was at the Nile, according to Rav Biederman, I think I said this last week, but I don't remember. Uh, he was told not to, one of the reasons why Moshe had to go to the Nile was not only did Paro relieve himself in the morning, he did some minor type of prayer. Now, even though Paro was a wicked human being, we still believe that any prayer is listened to. Korach, we're told, don't, I'll take fennel minchasam, Moshe the daven, that Shem shouldn't accept the sacrifice, the incense of Korach. That a prayer from any human being, it doesn't have to be deserving. The same thing, Geula, we don't have to deserve it. Hashem listens to our prayers. If we're just try to work on a Muna, like we said last week and this week, we gave other hints last week. If you want to go back to the other class from last week, you can see it on, on the Rivka can tell you how to see it. There are um, also a lot of hints how to gain a Muna. This week, that's some of the hints that we talked about of gaining a Muna. And any prayer, let's try to deepen our prayer and realize that we, there is someone at the other end of the line and he wants to talk to us. For some reason, deserving or not deserving, Hashem loves every Jew. He's waiting to give us the geula, just like in Mitzrayim, we didn't deserve it. And two and a half million people came out and they were Ode of Zara and they came out. We are also deserving. Hashem loves us too. I thank you for listening. I thank Rivka for her beautiful, beautiful administrative work. And I hope to see you next time, next place. If not in Yerushalayim, Yer HaKodesh with Mashiach Tzikenu, then back here on Zoom. Or maybe in an open city with everyone being healthy. Thank you for listening and mwah.